0: What would you give for a friend who could do for you one-tenth of all that you asked of him? Wouldn't that do? To ask for a million dollars and receive a hundred thousand? To ask for a thousand years of life and receive a hundred? Or to ask for ten thousand? And receive a thousand? Of course, the idea is ridiculous. Or is it? There's something much better. Scripture speaks of God as able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Now, of course, it does not mean foolish desires, foolish wishes, but those things that are for our ultimate good, God is able to do, and to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Scripture tells us that God is able to make all grace abound toward us, that we always having all sufficiency in all good things might abound to every good work. The Christian can always have enough. There is a story in the Old Testament that illustrates this theme. I'm reading from 2nd Kings chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? She said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house, except a jar of oil. Then Elisha said, Go outside, borrow vessels of all your neighbours, empty vessels, but not too few. Then go in, and shut the door upon yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels, and when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him, and shut the door upon herself, and her sons and she as she poured they brought the vessels to her when the vessels were full she said to her son bring me another vessel he said to her there is not another then the oil stopped flowing she came and told the man of god and he said go sell the oil pay your debts and you and your sons live on the rest well it's a story of widowhood and that which often accompanies widowhood, want and woe. The woman has nothing except debts, two young sons, and a jar of oil. Nothing? I'm wrong. She had friends. She had Elisha, and she had God. And Elisha gave a counsel to make room for the blessing of God. Go and gather empty vessels, not a few, Make room for what God is going to give you. Create space for the blessing. And did you notice? The blessing was as ample as the room she provided. According to her faith, was it unto her? It's interesting that in the previous chapter of this same book in Second Kings, when three kings and their armies were trapped in a desert, and at last they sought God, These thirsty kings, these thirsty armies, day after day without water. The counsel God gave them was, make the valley full of ditches. In the hot sun, perspiring, thirsty men had to dig ditches. They made the situation apparently worse, but they were making room for God. And at the hour of sacrifice, the water came, down from the mountains, down into those ugly, empty ditches. Water enough for the armies and their cavalry. Do you want always to have enough? My friend, there is a condition. We have to make room for God. We have to do it by faith. By faith, we must obey God, sometimes, apparently, even making things worse. But if we do thus make room for God, then God will provide all that we need, always. My friend, do you make room for God? Let's take the matter of time. Time is money. Time is power. We're rather selfish with our time. Unless it's for our recreation, or our money-making, or our family. Do you give God time? For example, do you give him his day? Has God got a day? Yes, my friend. In the heart of the Ten Commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labour and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. And it goes on to say that this even applies to a stranger that's within our gates. It even applies to the cattle on the property. We can't put them to work on that day. Here's an interesting command. To make room for God with our time. How important is it to do that? Why should we? Because God wants us to learn that he is God and that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all other things will be added unto us. Those that put first first get the first and the others as well. Those that put secondary things first ultimately lose those secondary things and of course, the primary as well. The Sabbath is designed to help us to make room for God, that we may learn to see all other things in life in true perspective. In his book, East River, Sholem Ash says this about the Sabbath. When a man labours, not for a livelihood, but to accumulate wealth, then he is a slave. Therefore it is that God granted the Sabbath. For it is by the Sabbath that we know that we are not working animals, born to eat and to labour. We are men. It is the Sabbath which is man's goal, not labour, but the rest which he earns from his labour. It was because the Jews made the Sabbath holy to God that they were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. It was by the Sabbath that they proclaimed that they were not slaves, but free men. Wherever men or societies forget the Sabbath, They sink to the bestiality of the brute or to the gross pride of Lucifer. The end of life is the vision of God. The first whole day that man ever spent, according to Genesis, was the Sabbath day. The first time in Scripture we find the word holy, that distinctive word of Scripture, which more than any other is representative of the mystery and majesty of the divine, the first time we find it in scripture, it is in connection with God hallowing the seventh day. God didn't sanctify places first, he sanctified time. Six days a week we live under tyranny, things of space. On the Sabbath, we try to become attuned to holiness in time. Six days a week, we seek to dominate the world, said Abraham Heschel. But on the seventh day, we try to dominate the self. God has given us 52 spring days in every year. A man without a Sabbath is like a home without a garden. Or a person without a smile. Think of the marvel of this institution of God, the very first religious institution that we meet in Holy Writ. What a sublime act of holiness, the whole rational creation standing still, as it were, on every seventh day, looking up to God. What could more strikingly proclaim in all men's ears that we have a common Lord and Master in heaven, and that all we are brethren. It reminds the rich that what they have is not properly their own, they hold it from a superior, a superior who demands that on this day the meanest employee shall be as his employer, more that even the very beast of the field shall be released from its yoke and stand free to its creator. No wonder that proud man who loves to do what he likes with his own, no wonder the busy world that's bent on pursuing with restless activity all its covetous concerns No wonder these would fain break asunder the bands of this holy institution. But my friend, he who lives for things alone is not really human. We cannot live without things, but to live for things alone is to be an animal. Few have observed the importance of this commandment in the heart of the Decalogue. It takes up approximately one third of the whole. God only took two words to tell men not to steal, two words to tell them not to kill, two words to tell them not to commit adultery. I'm referring to the Hebrew. But to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, God gave about a hundred and two. How tragic that the one commandment that God specifically asked men to remember he has forgotten most of all. Years ago when mules were used in the mines of Pennsylvania, a gentleman passing by noticed the animals in the field nearby and inquired the reason. These mules are worked in the mines through the week and they're brought up into the light on the Sabbath to stop them from going blind, he was told. The application's obvious. The stubborn addiction of man to earthly things and his neglect of the Sabbath requirement which God has placed in the bosom of his law have led to spiritual blindness and sorrow. I remember reading about a group of aggressive explorers in Africa who set off from the coast and pushed hard the first six days with their native retinue carrying the bundles. On the seventh day, they noticed the guide sitting under a tree when they were ready to go. Come on, they shouted. But the reply came from the leader of the natives. We no go today. We rest today to let our souls catch up with our bodies. That's our great need, my friends. Oliver Wendell Holmes years ago said, I have in my heart a small, shy plant called reverence, and I cultivate that every seventh day. Carlyle, the historian, said, The man who does not habitually worship is but a pair of spectacles behind which there is no eye. Worship, that's the word. It comes from worthship. If God matters at all, he matters tremendously. And worship becomes our primary duty, from which all other duties flow. Of necessity must there be a day ordained For worship of the holy of necessity god must tell us how often and for how long we should publicly worship him our creator and this he has done in the fourth commandment this is a commandment that reveals the things that we need most to know that we have an all-loving all-powerful heavenly father that the creature needs regularly to cease from the engrossment with things in order to direct his thoughts above. Is it not strange that today men can regularly violate God's express rule in this regard and still be accepted as men of character and esteem? How appropriate, how far-seeing was God's first word in the fourth commandment, remember. The Lord himself has told us that Sabbath observance and the correct ordering of the rest of life go together. Note the words entrusted to the gospel prophet Isaiah, Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold on it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Notice these wise words from Robert Haldane. The fourth commandment is closely connected with the other commandments but so far from having any Jewish origin, it is the first and only commandment announced in the opening of the sacred record, and was imposed on our first parents in their state of uprightness and innocence. It thus stands in a peculiar manner at the head of all the commandments, and involves in its breach the abandonment equally of the first and second tables of the Decalogue. It is placed at the end of the first table, as the tenth is at the end of the second, as the safeguard, of all the rest. It stands between the two tables of our duty to God and our duty to man as the great foundation and cornerstone binding both together. It's observance supporting and conducing to our obedience to the whole. The Sabbath commemorates the basic truths of creation and redemption. Creation is the foundation of all true living it's a foundation of worship and obedience all other doctrines spring from that when creation is forgotten men begin to act like animals but the sabbath is more it's a symbol of the gospel as well in hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3 we read that we which have believed do enter into rest and then it makes a parallel between the finished work of christ on the cross and his finished work of creation in the beginning both were completed on the sixth day on the first week of creation god said on the sixth day that all things were very good and he finished his work on the sixth day of passion week jesus cried it is finished and he entered into the rest of the holy sabbath that it might be a memorial of his redemptive as of his creative work our physical rest every seventh day is but an image Of the rest of conscience, the rest of heart, we have because we're trusting in the finished work of our Saviour and Redeemer, instead of our own tattered, sin-stained works. The perfect redemptive work of Jesus Christ accomplished a new creation. It justified God, it ransomed the world, it consolidated heaven, it shook hell, it condemned the devil. It magnified the law, it satisfied justice, it delighted God the Father, glorified God the Son, and brought down to earth God the Holy Spirit. It nullified sin, justified sinners, and petrified Satan. What a tremendous event, the coming of the Son of God to this foolish, fitful, feverish planet, to die for it. It was the coming of eternity into time, day into night, summer into winter, life into death, to fashion that lever, the lever of the cross which alone could lift earth to heaven, as it testified of heaven stooping to earth. To receive that good news brings rest to the heart and mind. We cease from trust in our own works, so continually stained by sin and enter into his rest. Thus is eternal life and heaven begun for the believer. Have you ever noticed that one chapter in every eight in the four gospels deals with the Sabbath? We find controversy after controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees because they had turned this great blessing into a curse. But he reformed the fourth commandment's observance as he did likewise with the fifth and the seventh and the third and it cost him his life. It is after these disputes that we read then they took counsel together to slay him. Our Lord worked seven miracles on the Sabbath in holy places, in domestic places, and on the way. He worked miracles for young and for old, for men and for women. And if we read the broad scope of our Lord's arguments in support of the true observance of the Sabbath, we see that as Lord of the Sabbath, his scepter is no axe to cup it down. Rather, he is purifying, reforming, refining, And when he says it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath day and that the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath, we see its supreme importance in the Christian era. In Isaiah chapter 58, we're told that the Sabbath is a luxury. Christ hints at this when he indicates that all things that are necessary for man's well-being are permissible on the Sabbath. For it is a fountain of life and joy, this day of luxury. Deeds of mercy, and deeds of piety, deeds of necessity, all are permissible. But God is to be our centre on that day. God and the well-being of his creatures, all his creatures, not just our own families. The Sabbath of God, my friends. Do you observe it? Do you make room for God? Do you make room for God with your goods and possessions and wealth? One should not be shy of talking about stewardship, of means as well as time. About one verse in every six recording the words of Jesus has to do with money or goods. He took it for granted that we would be good stewards if we are believers and give to him his own. The Jew in Old Testament times paid up to one-third of his income for holy purposes. The Christian must view all he has as the gift of God. And while God would have him use all that is needed for the support of family and body and soul, the needs of the gospel are to be given preeminence above all else. My friend, what are you doing? to help proclaim the gospel of the grace of God. Do you make room for God as regards your finances? Are you prepared to make that valley full of ditches? Are you prepared to gather empty vessels, not a few, by giving to God and emptying pockets? Make room for God. Those always have enough, who by faith obey this commandment. For God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all good things might abound to all good works. For God is able to give us exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Before God blesses us, he usually demands of us something. Before he opened the Red Sea, he told Israel to step into those brimming waters. It was the same as Israel a generation later was crossing into Canaan. The feet of God's men had to step into the flooding Jordan. Then the waters stopped. Then the miracle. Before Jericho could fall, Israel had to march around it and finally give a triumphant shout of faith. Then the walls fell. The act of faith. Making room for God. God either matters tremendously or he doesn't matter at all. If he matters tremendously. If we believe in worthship. Giving everything. The preeminence required according to its worth. Then God must be first. First with our time. First with our money. First with our love. And our sympathy. For there is something that God requires even more than a day of worship. Even more than our tithes and offerings. God wants our hearts. Adoration is our very first duty. Adam was kissed awake by his creator. The first face he saw was the face of God. My friend, that is deeply significant. We were made in the image of God. We were intended to fill our minds and hearts with the thought of God, his will and his truth. This is what it means to love God with all the heart and mind and soul and strength. Whatever gets our attention, gets us. If God has our attention, He'll have all there is of us, money, and time, and energies, and affections. Some people find it hard to believe that God loves them. Let them look at the cross and see how God is loved. It is written, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who although he was rich, for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Behold the naked Christ on the cross. Poor indeed, not even a loincloth. That is a myth provided by squeamish artists of medieval times. Our Lord was stripped naked because you and I are spiritually naked. We have no robes of righteousness of our own. The law of God requires a perfect robe of righteousness from all his children in which there's not one stitch of human devising. God is not content, my friends, with 50% obedience, or 60, or 70, or 90, or 95%, or 99. The law demands perfection, and that perfection is only found in our Saviour. And so he gave his robe to his crucifiers. Do you see it? Through his poverty, we become rich. So let us make space for God, room for God, with our time, with our money, with our energies, but most of all, with our love, poured out for him, that his purposes of beneficence might be accomplished for all beneath the sun. God help you as you plan so to do, my friend. Help me.